Amen. I'm going to take you to Revelation chapter 3. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about uh, the church at Philadelphia, Revival Church. And uh, today we're going to visit uh, one that um, might not have uh, had such a favorable uh, report as that church. So um, you don't have to stand. We'll read a few scriptures. Uh, just this letter that was written to uh, the church at Laodicea. So I'm going to uh, Revelation 3, uh, verse number 14 is where uh, this particular letter uh, starts. And uh, let's see what the word of the Lord say to us tonight. I believe the Lord has uh, spoken to me and believe um, not necessarily that this may be us, but that uh, it's a good lesson tonight uh, not to become these people. Amen. Praise God. So the scripture said, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. For behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. For a few moments tonight, I just want to talk to you from this thought, why God hates the lukewarm. Why God hates the lukewarm. Um... Of all the letters John was commissioned to write to these seven churches in the book of Revelation, the last on the list and our subject tonight should be the one that we never want to see sent again. Six previous letters spoke of disappointment. They spoke of dissatisfaction, even disbelief on the part of the Lord that his churches had ended up in some of the conditions that many of these found themselves in. But this seventh letter to the church at Laodicea went a step further because this church had not just found the disapproval of God, they had found the disgust of God. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that place tonight. Their current condition didn't just upset him, but it 
outraged him. Their lack of passion, their lack of zeal, their lack of fervor and intensity had made them lukewarm. You got to understand, they weren't all the way cold. The fire wasn't completely snuffed out at this point, but they were a far cry from where they were when they first started out. If you can allow me to say it like this, they were somewhere in the middle. And God wasn't too pleased about it. I found a quote, New York Times best-selling author and Bible prophecy guru. His name is Joel Rosenberg. You may know him from some of his works. Was quoted as saying this. Maybe it's time to go back 2,000 years for a spiritual renaissance. If not, our days are numbered and a terrible implosion is coming. There is no more, and this is my focus of his quote, there is no more middle ground. It is one or it is the other. Mr. Rosenberg made that statement to address what he believes is one of the greatest threats to our future as a world, as a country, and as individuals. Because what he was trying to inform us of is there comes a time when you must take a stand. You've got to choose a side. You've got to settle what it is that you truly believe. And his argument Seems compelling, and I like it, but I'll do you one better. I'll give you a perspective of a much more versed student of biblical prophecy because Jesus told a group of inquisitive and questioning disciples in Matthew twelve thirty, this is war, and there is no neutral ground. He said, if you're not on my side, then you're my enemy. If you're not helping with my cause, then you're simply making things worse. And I submit to you tonight, in the kingdom of God, there is no middle ground. You can't be a part-timer. You can't be a some-timer. You can't even be a most of the time. You're either all the way in or you're all the way out. Thank you, Pastor, for preaching to us on Sunday. Because we're living in a world today that wants you to believe that commitments and absolutes and convictions and taking a stand and not bowing to the gods of this world and calling sin, sin. Living holy, living righteous, and I could continue, are things of another era. They want you to accept that we have somehow moved beyond these things, and now, as long as we can justify it within ourselves, God's just going to pat us on the back as we walk through the gate saying, I've got you covered. Came for a Bible study tonight, but I feel kind of like preaching because if you're buying those lies tonight, it's time to wake up. 
It's time to shake yourself, and it's time to listen and remember that our God is an eternal God. When he set the foundation, he set the foundation as an eternal God. When he made the mark, he made the mark as an eternal God. And for him, nothing has changed. Nothing has shifted. And nothing has been replaced. What has changed and what has shifted is our appetites. And our desires. And our pursuits. We need a revival. We need a renewing in our spirits. We need a revisit to the altar of our first love because we are indeed in a war tonight. And if we don't align ourselves with the side that has already won, we will be lost. Because just as war in the natural, when you engage in spiritual warfare, there is no sideline to retreat to. There's no safety zone. There's no time out. There's no place of truce. There simply is no middle ground. I believe tonight with all of my heart that God is calling his church back to an understanding of that fact that we are in a war. He's wanting us to remember that we have an adversary fighting with us every day with everything he's got. And because of it, we must, as children of God, stay engaged in the battle. In this critical hour, we can't fall short of our callings, we can't shrug off our responsibilities. Because we cannot lose what has been entrusted and given to us. Hear me tonight. If we lose ground now, we may never have time or opportunity to recover what is lost. There's no room in this hour for concessions. There's no room to back up. There's no middle position. And I've come tonight not to be mean, but to remind us that we've got to make sure we keep our priorities right. We place value on the things of God. We love our doctrine. We love our message. And better yet, we love Him more than we have ever loved Him before. Amen. That's the hour that we live. We've got to be the people that stand in the midst of a world in chaos, squaring our shoulders and planting our feet. Because if we are not, any ground we retreat from, any ground we back off from, any ground we aren't willing to stand for, will be conquered and controlled by our enemy. And we can't give him one ounce or one inch of territory tonight. Amen. We've got to advance. We've got to go forward. We've got to be an army, mighty and strong, and hold our position in this very critical hour. Sat down today getting my thoughts together, um, putting everything in place for tonight, 
And uh, as I sat down, I couldn't help but think of Shammah. And uh, if you don't remember him, uh, let me remind you of his story really quickly tonight. Shammah was one of David's mighty men. And I love David's mighty men because what's important to always remember about David's mighty men is really they were a bunch of misfits. They, uh, they all had their issues. They all had their problems. Uh, they were all in the kind of the same situation that David was in at the time when they met him. And they all... Uh, have a story to tell, and Shammah was no exception because before he met David, he was a mess. In fact, if you look at his pedigree, Shammah was destined to go down in history as a loser. There is no way when you look at him that he is supposed to be remembered as a mighty man. There is no way he's supposed to be remembered alongside a king because Shammah was the product of a man by the name of Agi. And the only thing you can find in Scripture about Agi is the true meaning of his name. And literally tonight, there is nothing more to say about Agi but that his name means he's a runner. You know who's never remembered? Cowards. Runners. People who are always running away. People who never find anything worth sticking to. People who never find anything worth buying into and saying, this is where I'm standing, and I'm not going anywhere. And his whole life was marked by the fact, Agi, that he was too afraid to ever take a stand for anything. Trouble comes, Agi bolts. Conflicts start brewing, storms start coming, Agi starts running. Things start getting a little tough. Agi is out. That's who he is. And it became his identity. And it became his story. And it became his destiny. So much so that when Miss Agi, I don't really know her name, we'll call her that, gave him that great news one day. You are going to be a dad. His nature was transferred into his lineage. Because in times where names mattered and men named their children according to the greatness that they saw in front of them, Agi gets to the delivery room. Nine months he's had to settle on this name. And he arrives and he looks at the baby, that blank slate, that new life that's going to be molded by his choice of a name. And he says, let's call him Shammah. And 
I can imagine, and you will too in just a second, that the whole room looked up in disbelief. They looked up almost in disgust because all the hopes and all the dreams and all the plans for this baby just went out the window when Aggie said, let's name him Shema. Because his daddy named him a waste. That's literally what the name Shema means in the scripture. A waste. The desolate one. One who has nothing. Can you imagine that poor kid at the playground? Hey, desolate one. What's happening? Seen your daddy lately? Did he run away again? Hey, waste. What'd you do on that test today? And he has lived with that kind of ridicule day after day, year after year. No wonder when he meets David, he's hiding in a cave like a fugitive. From the very beginning, his dad said, there's nothing to this. He's just a waste. But one day, thank the Lord, he met a king. And the king believed in him. And he gave him a reason to fight. And he gave him a place to belong. And so when the enemy came on that fateful day, if you remember the story, it was Shammah who stood in his field of beans. When the Philistines came to take it, as they had done year after year after year, they had let God's people work the field. They had let them labor. They had let them produce a harvest. Only when it came time to go reap it, to come in and steal it for themselves. So when they found that man that day, they were shocked to see that he wasn't the runner and he wasn't the waste and he wasn't what he was supposed to be because one encounter with a king changed his nature forever. They didn't find the same man. They didn't find the shamel with no future and no cause. But they found a man that after serving with a king learned he could change his destiny. He didn't have to live under the curse of his father, but he could live under the blessing of the king. I don't know about you, but that still excites me today. That still does something to me. That one encounter with him can change the entire course of a man's life. Even when nobody else could see anything in him. Even when his own dad started him out on a road leading to nowhere. One encounter with the king changed it all. So many are too scared to take a stand. And they are falling into the trap of the modern mantra of tolerance and acceptance. And they are leaving the message and abandoning the harvest. But I've come tonight to challenge us, to remind us we must stay with the king because the harvest is worth it. Can't back up, can't give up ground, but we've got to fight like we've never fought before. And I pray God give us strength for that, and I know he will. Amen.
I fear tonight that the spirit of the world has crept into many places. And what's happened is instead of preaching our message with conviction and backbone, many have tried to assume a position somewhere in the middle. Amen? But I don't know how they can do that. I don't know how we can occupy middle ground and still preach, come out from among them and be a separate. I don't know how we can go from middle ground to love not the things of this world. Uh, I don't know that we can preach our message unless we stand on the mountaintop and proclaim that men must come up higher. Because our message will never leave anyone like it found them. I'm thankful for that tonight. Our message isn't one of acceptance and excuses and tolerance for sin that will let you stay like you are because Jesus loves you anyway. No, no. Our message will transform you. Our message will pull you out of your sin. Our message will pull you out of your confusion. Our message will pull you out of addiction and bondage and all the things that this world and this life wants to shackle you with. My salvation was like the song we used to sing, He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock to stay. He put a song in my soul today, a song of praise, hallelujah. He'll give you a song to leave you in the pit to sing and serenade yourself. He gave you a song to bring you out, put you on a new foundation and sing to the masses that he will not leave you like he found. So thankful for that today. Amen. Aren't you thankful for that? That Jesus didn't leave you like you found you? Sure we are. And it seems to reason tonight that we would be fueled and we would be faithed and we would be filled with determination and zeal and fervency and we would never fall into apathy and complacency and lukewarmness when we think of how good he's been to us. But we do. We just get so caught up in the rat race sometimes that we all fall into the trap like many before us. We get a few miles away from Calvary and we forget the great price that he paid for us. We begin to cool off just a little. Remember when you first got the Holy Ghost? You thought, just give me a water pistol. Look out, hell, here I come. You're on fire. You told everybody. You called everybody. You ready to teach a million Bible studies. I don't need to sleep. Just bring them to me. Right? But we get a few miles away from that, and we start to cool down just a little bit. 
In my Bible reading the other morning, I, I was reading and I came across the passage again where Peter walked out onto that water and uh, how when those uh, winds began to blow those waves up the side of his leg and he began to think about what he was doing and he got his eyes off of Jesus, he started to sink. He started to go down. And so Jesus, being cool like he is, just scoops him up and puts him back in the boat. And he scolds him just a little bit about his lack of faith. And I noticed something in reading it. I've thought about it before, but really stood out the other morning. Peter didn't get upset at Jesus when Jesus said, you've got little faith. Come on, Lord. Nobody else wanted to walk out there with you. Nobody else has taken any steps. He shouldn't have said that to me. My feelings are a little bit hurt. Right? He didn't do that. He didn't get upset with him when he diagnosed him. And the Lord spoke to me and said he didn't get upset. Because he was very close to a salvation experience. He was really, really, really aware at that moment that without me, things could be very, very different. See, up to that point, Peter's just walking with the Lord. They're like buddies. They're like homeboys. Jesus walks by the shipyard one day says hey follow me I'm going to make you a fisher of men and it sounded cool so they dropped everything and they start walking with him but when Jesus saved him from drowning he got a revelation this isn't just my buddy this is my savior this is a guy that can get me out no matter what I get myself into. <clears throat> so when he gets scolded or chastened by the Savior, <clears throat> he's not Peter-esque. He doesn't have a hot-headed reply or a smart remark. He's just still rejoicing in the fact that Jesus had just pulled him up when he was certainly going down. Ah, don't act like it don't happen to us. Let me remind you tonight of the church in our text at Laodicea. In New Testament time, give you a little history, New Testament time, Laodicea was the most important city in this Roman province of Phagara. Uh, it was located in Asia Minor. It was 90 miles east of Ephesus and about 10 miles west of Colossus, kind of close to two churches. Laodicea stood on the banks of the Lycus River, and it was a very important commercial center because it occupied a place at a crossroads in that part of the Roman Empire. Laodicea was known throughout the ancient world for its beautiful black wool. 
They made very expensive garments there with this wool, and many wealthy and prominent citizens lived in Laodicea. By all accounts, they had it together. By all accounts, things were pretty good. But when the angel began to write, he said, I know thy works. He isn't amazed by their words. He isn't awed by their Facebook status or their social media presence. He isn't uh, wowed by their profile pics and their bios, right? Kind of like we get distracted in this world. Think that all that junk everybody puts on Facebook's their real life. Mm. They don't always live on vacation. They do come back into the real world. <laughs> and he wasn't impressed with all of that. And he said, I know thy works. I know what you're doing. Your words say one thing, but your works don't align. See, that's why we're trying to advance his kingdom. Aren't you thankful for that? That's why we like to give to missions. That's why we still do outreach things. That's why we have a recovery program. That's why we have all these things. Because we want to see the kingdom of God advance. Amen. It's not about putting on a show. It's not about a performance. It's not so we can stand and say, look at us and what we've been able. It doesn't matter how much we stand here and preach it. If we don't do it, see, we can have kinds of services that we've been having lately. We can look around and we can see God moving so greatly and get so caught up because we're in the building that we fool ourselves into believing that we have it all put together. But let me make it personal to you tonight. You can say, amen. You can say, I'm behind you, preacher. You can say, I'm committed. I'm there. Count on me. Chalk me up. Put me in. But if your works don't align, you will fool around and fall right into the trap of the enemy. This is one of those way back there in the Old Testament tucked away scriptures that we don't see very often. But Daniel said this, those that do wickedly against the covenant, he would corrupt by flatteries. But they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit. See, here's the test tonight. How do you know if you're doing wickedly against the covenant? This is a great test. If you really, really, really like all the flattery. Now, I know we like it, some of it. But if you're waiting for all the flatteries, if you're sitting around to soak up the compliments, if you're sitting around gloating in all the praise, you're being tricked. 
And you're going to sit around and you're going to get a head so big it's going to explode. (laughs) But if you want to abide in the covenant, if you want to know him, if you want real strength, you must be doing something. Hear me tonight. God did not invest in us for us to sit in our beautiful facility and gloat about our great pastor and his phenomenal preaching and our great music program and their magnificent singing. Come on, Laodicea. I know your works. They were sitting around in their beautiful temple wearing their fine wool, flattered and fat. Thought they had it made. Look what we have done. Look at our riches. Look at our successes. But he said, you have become too comfortable in your own blessings. And you have become lukewarm. You don't have the same drive that you used to have. You're not on fire anymore. You're lukewarm. You're comfortable. You like it. How it is now, you like the respect that you have now. You like the influence that you have now. And and those things are good. I'm not throwing them away today. We need respect and we need influence. But if we aren't using it to affect the kingdom of God, we're missing the point altogether. And that's what he was so upset at them over They were not advancing. They were not thriving. And they couldn't even see it. (laughs) See, if you do a word study, you'll find that Laodicea is derived from two Greek words that combine to mean this. It means a people of decision or better, a people of action. And God said, you've gone from a people of action, a people with hustle and drive, a people on a mission to lukewarm. Lukewarm comes from the Greek word chilleros. Sorry for the English lesson and Hebrew lesson and Greek lesson tonight. It's what I do. That word means, because if you know what words mean, you can find out what the scripture means. That word, chilleroos, in the Greek, it means diluted. Other things have come in, and they have weakened us, and they have watered us down. And it leads me to my first point. Don't worry. I lay big, long foundations. Usually spend more time getting to the points because I want you to know if the enemy steals the point that the foundation's still there. Amen. First point. I know it's 742. Why God hates a lukewarm church? Because a lukewarm church has a divided affection. Colossians 3.2, set your affection. On things above, not on things on the earth. God expects his church to have a singular affection. And that singular affection to be on him. 
But sadly, many have traded the better things and the greater things and their promise because they listen to the world and they've become deluded. Because the world looks at us and they say, calm down. Don't get so excited. Don't get so fanatical. Chill out just a little bit. And that's why God hates the lukewarm. Because it settles for a small blessing and for temporal things over the eternal things. It takes no stand. It gains no ground. But it, in fact, gives ground to the enemy. And there was way too much paid for what many are giving away in this hour. My second point, why God hates a lukewarm church, is because a lukewarm church can't perform her mission. Our mission is truly outlined in one of our shouting scriptures. But its intention is not just to make us shout, but it is to make us accountable as we shout. See, some of our shouting scriptures, we just love them. They're our favorites. We like them, and we just shout about them. But this particular one outlines our mission because it makes us accountable while we shout about the part of it we like, Acts 1 and 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And that's the shout part. I mean, y'all heard that, and that's where it stopped. And we shout, woo, power. Because we like it. I like it. But here's the accountable part. And ye shall be witnesses Unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. He empowered us to go change them. He never intended for you and I to get deluded. He never intended for the Holy Ghost fire that we like to shout about to ever go out. But he intended for us to walk in that power and in that authority and perform his will on this earth. Because God's plan for us was to do exactly what the early church did. And if you read about them, they turned the world upside down. They kept their power. They kept their fire. They didn't become diluted. They didn't wax cold. They didn't back up from challenges. But persecution just pushed them and sent them. And they became an agent that God used to literally turn the world upside down. We can't do that with a divided affection. We can't do that in a lukewarm state. Lukewarm people don't challenge anyone. They don't call people to action. Why? 
because lukewarm people blend into the crowd. They start saying the same things that the crowd says. They start accepting things that the crowd believes. They start trading away things. They top, stop taking a stand. They start believing that somebody else can go fight that fight. And what they don't realize is that by saying nothing, they are in fact supporting everything. You know why 3% of this population changed our Constitution not too long back? Because they got the support of the lukewarm. By diluting us to the point that we don't even present a good challenge. How does a Holy Ghost-filled church lose her power to resist the evils of our day? How? My last point. Because a lukewarm church leaves Jesus on the outside hoping somebody will let him in. He went through this discourse to them. He talked to them. He told them. He let them know where they were at. But he gave them a chance in verse 19 that if they would just repent, he was still standing at a door knocking. If anybody would come to the door, he'd walk in, all be good again, and he'd be apart. But the lukewarm church leaves him on the outside, still knocking. Still waiting, still hoping. The Laodicean church had it all together inside their own cathedral. But what they were missing was that Jesus wasn't even in the room. They had status, they had wealth, they had great singing, they had good programs, they had great preaching, they had all of those things. But Jesus was left out because of their condition. God help us that we never get so confident that we can't even tell that he's not in the building. I'll say that again. Lord, help us that we don't get so confident that we can't even tell he's not in the building. Help us that we don't mistake our talent for his anointing. Because it can become easy sometimes to get drunk on the blessings of God and the faithfulness of God and the favor of God and lose our pursuit of God. But I heard the Lord say to the lukewarm church at Laodicea, this is what he said, I don't deal in your tainted gold and your black wool. I'm a God of pure gold, tried in the fire. I'm a God of white raiment that makes yours look like a cheap suit. But before you get mad at me, understand this. I only tell this kind of stuff to those that I love. I only send these kind of warnings and I only chasten and I only rebuke those that I love. I've come by to tell you I love you. And it's your time to arise and open the door and find your zeal again. And he told them, 
I will make you an overcomer. And I stand here tonight at the close of this message to say again to this church, I sound like a broken record, but I believe it with all my heart. There's destiny on us. There's a forward move on us. There's an unction from God on us. I believe with all my heart this is our time and this is our season and this is our hour. But God is calling us out of our comfort. He's calling us out of our apathy and our complacency. And he's saying, find your passion again. Find the zeal again. Make proof of your ministry again. It's time for exploits. It's time for great things. It's time to step into the harvest field because it is white and it is ready. If you believe that tonight, I'm finishing right there. Why don't you stand with me and let's give the Lord some great praise Amen. Come on, somebody. I thank God for his word today. I thank God for his promise today. Amen. We don't have to fall in that trap that many have fallen into, but we can be that group that does know our God. Amen. You know that's a progression. They that know him shall be strong. There's a knowing, there's a becoming, and there's a doing. Starts with knowing who he is and becoming what he's called us to be. And then we'll have everything that we need to go do what he's called us to do. I love you tonight. Thank you for the time.